in the large upstairs room was tense. Unhappy, uncertain. The evening had gone badly from the start. The disciples had gathered with Jesus as arranged and climbed to the upstairs room where the food was already pre-prepared. They looked around for the traditional servant to, to wash their feet, but seeing no one and being too polite to mention it, uh, the disciples stretched out on their pallets around the low eating table without saying a word. Jesus offered the traditional prayer of thanksgiving, and then they noticed that Jesus was pushing himself off his pallet. The talk was stilled. The master quietly took off his cloak, and to their utter consternation, he went over to the washstand, wrapped the towel around his waist, picked up the large basin of water, and headed for the nearest disciple. Teachers shouldn't do things like that. Not, not even equals should wash another's feet. That's the job for servants, and servants with the least seniority at that. The first disciple, too surprised to move, too embarrassed to protest, felt his sandals being slipped off. And then the cool water and the dry towel. The master proceeded to the second disciple and then to the third. All the while, the silence was deafening. Typically, it was Simon Peter who broke the silence. As Jesus approached to wash his feet, Peter curled up his legs and pointed out the inappropriateness of the master's action with what he thought was a tactful question. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus straightened his back, looked at him straight in the eye, and replied quietly, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter's voice hardened. Someone had to speak out. If the master could not see that he was demeaning himself, Peter would have to tell him. No, he said, you'll never wash my feet. Still, Jesus looked at him with that unwavering gaze. Unless I wash you, he said, you have no part with me. Open confrontation. For a moment, the still air was charged with suspense. Did Jesus not recognize Peter was speaking out of love? But faced with a response like that, Peter was not slow in rising to the occasion. He decided to take advantage of the situation, declare his love in a different way. Then, Lord, he replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now, that might have relieved the tension, but then Jesus added something more. Something which at the time was highly enigmatic and restored the gloomy foreboding in the room. He said, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And he added, looking around the room, you are clean, though not every one of you. And in the utter, utter silence that followed, he finished washing their feet. The disciples watched Jesus wipe his hands, don his cloak, return to his pallet, and unable to look at each other, embarrassed both from themselves and for their teacher, they were quietly grateful that the episode was over. And then all of a sudden it was not, for Jesus began speaking again. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. They understood well enough. He had washed their feet. But then they began to see that he expected a deeper answer than that. See, what Jesus had done for them was provide a model. And as this truth slowly dawned on them, drawn out by this quiet question, they found their groping answered, confirmed, as Jesus responded to his own question. You, told, you call me teacher and Lord, he said, and rightly so, for that is what I am. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that's an extended excerpt, a narration really, of the first 17 verses of chapter 13. Hopefully, hopefully you were able to enter a space where you could imagine yourself as a, as a disciple, seeing Jesus in that moment. Because when John records this account for us, he describes it in such a way that he wants us to sit with him in that upper room. He wants us to see what he saw. He wants us to hear what he heard. He wants us to feel the weight of what Jesus did. Because as we do that, we might begin to understand why Jesus would do such a bewildering thing and why he tells his disciples to do likewise. And by extension, why, why we must do the same. Because that's what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. And that is right. For that is what I am. But now that I've washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. So what does this mean? What does this mean to wash another person's feet? Now, living in 21st century Sydney, uh, we've got a slight disadvantage, I think, and a bit of work to do in terms of working that out. It's not a simple black and white one-to-one application, right? I think very few of us would come away from a passage like this, go get towels and robes and begin to literally wash each other's feet. Right? That, well, I hope not at least. Right? There's, a, there's a historical hurdle, there's a cultural hurdle that we've got to overcome about what Jesus is telling his disciples to do and therefore telling us to do with our hands. And so I've got a bit of work ahead for us, but I hope that you desire to know so that we might be better followers of Jesus. Um, so we're going to go to our first point today. I'm going to go to our first point, and the first point is this, that foot washing is an act of hospitality. Right? Foot washing is an act of or hospitality. See, Jesus, Jesus wasn't doing an action that was, you know, particularly new. If you read some of the Old Testament, you'll see quite quickly that hospitality was part and parcel of how you might welcome someone into your home. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll put some passages on the screen, just as some samples, examples, you can look at it in your own time, of where, hospi- where, where as people, as guests walk into a home, Foot washing is just natural. It's a part of it. It's a part of life. It's the equivalent of offering somebody slippers in an Asian household. It's a huge part and parcel. So how does it work? How does that work, foot washing? Well, foot washing was typically done when a, when a guest or stranger arrived at your place. They would recline on a mat. They would uh, lie on a low table. They would lean on their left arm, and they would point their feet outwards so that it might be washed. And there was a real need for it, right? Because their feet would have been really dusty having walked all over the place. They wore rope and leather sandals for the most part. Their feet would have been sweaty and filthy. And so it had to be cleaned as they were entering somebody's home. And the job was left for the lowliest of servants to do because it was such a disgusting job to wash the feet of these guests. And so you've got to understand, right, that this practice of foot washing was actually one of welcoming. It's an action of hospitality. It's extending one's place to receive guests and even strangers. And so um, washing feet then was a way to show people who were coming into your place that you were totally devoted to them. 
You were subservient to them. You were willing to serve them in any way. Um, I don't know if you know this, but this account of Jesus washing his disciples, it's unique to the biography of John. We don't see this in the other biographies that we've got in the Bible of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not there. And I think there are many reasons for this, but the one reason that I want to draw your attention to as to why is this. Hospitality is a theme that is also unique to the biography of Jesus written by John. That's a unique theme to John. Now, while we might not see the word, the actual word hospitality anywhere, when you read the whole biography, it's pretty hard to miss. Let me give you a few examples. At the very beginning of the biography, in chapter 1, John paints this picture that Jesus became vulnerable to to the welcome of the world, which in turn failed to treat him with hospitality. You've got these famous verses in John chapter 1. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to enter into our world is a demonstration of his willingness to share himself to the world. But also that he has come to the world to be welcomed by the world. And so John, right at the very beginning, beautifully paints this picture of the giving of hospitality and Jesus also desiring hospitality. But there's more to it. Um, The biography of John will use the language, actually, we just see it there, of receiving and not receiving when we're talking about accepting or rejecting Jesus. Right? Just like you receive someone when you're hospitable, those that accept God are described as those who receive Him. They receive Jesus for who He is. Similarly, those who reject God are commonly described as not receiving. That's the language of hospitality. Another example, Jesus is the gift that was sent from God. He is the gift, that's unique, that language of gift, of, li- of life-giving bread and the gift of living water. See, not only is accepting Jesus used in the terms of hospitality, but Jesus himself, the gift, he's the bread for the hungry. He's the water for the thirsty. That's used in terms of hospitality as well. There's more that can be said, but I hope you can agree, right, that hospitality is a theme of this biography of Jesus. It's not one of the biggest themes, but it is there. And so it's unsurprising then that we have this account of Jesus performing an ancient custom of hospitality to his disciples. And so, having, we've, we've established, right, it's an act of hospitality, but we're going to move on to our second point, which is that foot washing is a symbol for hospitality, right? Uh, it's not some random event that Jesus is doing. Why does Jesus, why does Jesus do this foot washing here? And what do we learn about hospitality from what Jesus does with the foot washing? What does it symbolize? Um, I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind. I think the first thing is that Jesus' hospitality is marked by love. It's marked by love. Now, we see that at the end of verse 1. Have a look at the end of verse 1. It reads, Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. See, because of his love, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. The, the phrase he loved to the end isn't just about um, loving to the end of his life. He certainly does that. But it means that Jesus' love for his disciples, what draws him to wash his disciples' feet, is a love of the highest intensity. A love that is um, 
going to the furthest it can possibly be, an utter, an utter love. This is a deep, deep love. And throughout Jesus' time on earth, if you're familiar with who Jesus is and, his, and, and what he's done, he's constantly calling people to love, right? He calls people to love their neighbors, whether they like them or not. He calls people to love their enemies as well. And so Jesus shows on a night, on this night, on this, on this particular account recorded for us, precisely what that love looks like. And that love isn't glamorous. As we talked about earlier, what Jesus does is a job reserved for the lowliest of servants. You're dealing with sweat, dirt, dung, all sorts of smells. See, love does not always appear glamorous. And I think for many of us, we kind of know that already. Um, I was speaking to my cousin who uh, was visiting from Hong Kong uh, just in the lead up to Christmas. She's got a two-year-old boy. Uh, and he was sick coming in, and so he, he threw up on the plane. Pretty, pretty, pretty nasty. Um, now I don't know about you, but my reaction to when somebody throws up is to turn the other way. Maybe on the plane, at best, I'll grab the bag and give it to them. But what does my cousin do? Mum, her first instinct is to put her hands out to try to catch as much of the vomit as possible. That's her first instinct. I don't know if you've done that, mums in the room, catching vomit. Um, but even if you haven't, we know that, uh, this nervous laughter, love is not glamorous, is it? See, Jesus shows us in the muck and mire of washing feet that hospitality motivated by this love isn't glamorous either. And I think the trouble is, even though we know that, can, that often is the way to love, and that's what it often looks like to love, uh, sometimes we feel like, we're a bit above that. Maybe it's because we've reached a certain pedigree in life. Maybe it's something we've had to deal with in the past, and so we've done from that. We've moved on. Maybe there are just better things to do with our time. But what does, Jesus, what does John highlight about Jesus? There's particular details that we see. Have a look at verse 3, because John highlights what Jesus knows. Verse 3, John writes that Jesus knew... Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and was returning to God, knowing all that stuff. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing and wrapped a towel around His waist. What does Jesus know? What did Jesus know? Jesus knew that God had put everything under His control. He knew that He was from eternity past, that He was returning to God to reign with power. He knew that he had all power, all knowledge, all pedigree, all glory. And yet it is because of that knowledge. Then he gets up from the meal, takes off his outer clothing and wraps the towel around his waist. That's incredible. And especially when you start doing some stitching with the other biographies of Jesus we've got in the Gospels. We see that the other disciples, what have they just come from? They've come from arguing with each other bickering amongst each other, who among them is the greatest? And yet, you have at the middle of this room, the greatest of them all, who they would all acknowledge, be the first and only person to take the task of this lowliest and despised servant before them. He was willing to show them hospitality. He was willing to serve them. Jesus in this act so powerfully demonstrates that our God is a God who serves and He welcomes But not only is Jesus' hospitality marked by love, it's marked by a willingness to be hurt. 
Like we've already said, Jesus is keenly aware of everything that is going on, everything that is about to take place. He knows right there in the middle of, in, in the middle of all this situation, as he's washing his disciples' feet, that among his dearest friends who have traveled every step he's taken in the last three years of his public ministry, there is one who will soon leave the room, betray him for pieces of silver, and deliver him over to the authorities. He knows that. He knows he's there. We see that in verses 2 and 11. I won't read it out. You'll see it there. That Jesus knows who's going to betray him. In Middle Eastern hospitality, to turn against the one who has welcomed you and shown you hospitality, that's the height of betrayal. And yet, what does Jesus do? He's completely aware, and yet he's also completely undeterred. He goes ahead. He washes Judas' feet. He welcomes him. He loves him. He serves him. And so you have this radical picture, radical contrast. You've got Judas's appalling, soon-to-be action, and you've got Jesus' love and welcome in spite of that. One writer writes, It's hard to conceive of a more powerful demonstration of Jesus' command to love one's, en- to love one's enemies. And so what does, that mean? what does that mean for us? When you've got these two aspects of Jesus' hospitality, Marked by love, marked by a willingness to be hurt. What does that say about what we know of hospitality? I think it looks very different to the hospitality that we might be used to. I think when you put these two aspects of Jesus' hospitality together, it's very difficult to hold on to hospitality as simply a form of entertainment, of entertaining family and friends, or having just people over to hang out. It certainly includes that, don't get me wrong, but it can't just be that. So what then? What, what is this Jesus' hospitality? How do, how, what words should we put to it? Well, I want to suggest today that Jesus-like hospitality must also involve welcoming and serving, and this is key, in the hopes that outsiders move from stranger to guests in God's home. Jesus-like hospitality must involve welcoming and serving in the hopes that outsiders move from stranger to guests in God's home. See, that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples, right? That's what he hopes his disciples will do to others, right? He wants his disciples to show welcome, hospitality as they go out, speak to, serve, love by washing people's feet into God's household. That's the goal. And so as we as a church consider what it means to involve our heads, our hearts, our hands in the task of reaching those who don't know Jesus, we can't forget that Jesus has called us to wash feet. He has told us to serve, to show hospitality, to welcome others as He has served, shown hospitality and welcomed us. And so that applies how we connect with people at church on a Sunday. And I'm so grateful that we've got a fantastic connecting team at our congregation. Our, our congregation in general is fantastic at meeting people who are coming for the first time, who are thinking about what, what it means to be a Christian or think about questions to do with Christianity. And I want to say, um, fantastic job. Let's continue to do that. And by the way, um, I don't know if for some of you who were at the weekend away, um, I was so encouraged by, um, remember you got two response forms? I got to keep the second one. Uh-huh. But I was so encouraged that so many of you were saying, you know what I want to do before I come to every service? I want to, I want to pray that I'm thinking of somebody in the service before I come. 
I want to do that. I want to be mindful of my, my heart as I walk into church about how I'm going to care for other people. That's fantastic. So let's keep doing that as a church. But hospitality isn't just Sunday at church, is it? Reflect with me. When was the last time you welcomed people into your life, maybe into your home, with that as your primary intention? You're showing hospitality in the hopes that outsiders move from strangers to guests in God's home. You're not there to entertain them, but that's the hope. When was the last time you did that? Now, Sam Chan, uh, who some of you may have heard of, um, he's done a lot of work thinking about telling people about Jesus. He does it as a full-time job among city workers. He's lectured on it in the past. He wrote a book last year, which you may have seen, uh, which I'd highly recommend, by the way. Um, it's about making the unbelievable... You might not see the, the, sub, the, the caption there. Um, making the unbelievable good news of Jesus in a skeptical world more believable. Highly recommend. If, if there's a book you were going to read this year, read, apart from the Bible, in addition to the Bible, read that. And one of the fantastic observations of Western culture that Sam makes is... Um, that there are two statements, and this is going to get a little bit nerdy, so bear with it. Uh, there are two statements, that, two types of statements that fill the conversations that we have. Right? The first type of statement are those that um, are often difficult to, to check, difficult to verify. Um, around top, it could be a, a range of topics. For example, it could be gambling is wrong, capitalism is better than socialism, there's a God. Right? Those sorts of statements that are kind of difficult to verify on the whole. Right? And so when those statements are talked about, they're often talked about in, in argument form or, or extensive discussion form, maybe. And, and Sam called, and it's not Sam, but um, those statements, he, he describes them as uh, numinal statements, right? Numinal statements. Numinal statements in the West are surprisingly, unsurprisingly really, reserved for private spaces, which is probably why we're told to avoid religion. We're told to avoid politics, when we're in public, to talk about it at least. You've got, so that's your first type, the noumenal. You've got your second type, which is the phenomenal statement. Now, phenomenal statements are those that, opposite to, to, to noumenal, they can be easily backed up. They're easy to access, easy to verify. They're based on something tangible, right? often something in front of you. For example, one plus one is two. The sky is blue. Nadal won the other day, right? Those sorts of things. Phenomenal statements are, are safer to talk about in public because they're easy to verify, and they make up a lot of what we know as small talk. Now, matters of faith, matters of faith, um, for most people, fall under the noumenal category, right? Noumenal statements, which is why living in Sydney, we are subtly told that we're free to believe anything we want to believe, but it has to be in the privacy of your home. It's frowned upon to talk about your religion, things that, are or things that are sacred in public spaces. You do it at home. You do it in places that are more religious, like a church service. And so naturally, when you do that enough, you begin to have a divide about things that are sacred, so things that are things of faith, and then things that are secular, pretty much everything else. And so that divide between what's sacred and noumenal versus what is secular and phenomenal if you examine your life, if you examine your experience, if you examine your conversations even, um, you would know that this exists, that this is a reality for people living in Western culture. And so what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Well, um, Sam writes, we can, we can fight that. 
we can dismantle it. But those are longer-term things. But in the meantime, what we ought to do is we've got to work with it, right? Work with what we've got. And so how do we work with it? Well, I want to encourage you to still read the book, but um, essentially the, the solution is to learn to be hospitable. You progressively work your way to invite people into private spaces where conversations about numinal topics, about sacred topics, are more, uh, they're naturally going to happen more. Things like your views on education, politics, health, maybe, and hopefully, eventually, your faith. Right? Make the most of the fact that people are more willing to engage with matters of faith when they're sitting across the table from you or on your couch. And so, church, what's the next step for you? in showing hospitality, in showing a hospitality that hopes that outsiders move from strangers to guests. Perhaps for you, nobody comes to mind. Perhaps the next step for you then is to pray and consider people that you might get to know, your neighbor, that person on your sports team, that colleague. And maybe if you do, the next step might be to begin with a coffee, invite them to hang. Right? That's not a very long time frame, which is great for you if, if this is nerve-wracking, this sort of thing. But it's also great for them because it's not overly confrontational. That could be your next step. Perhaps for you, though, you might have people you see regularly that aren't believers. But conversations never have moved into matters of faith. It's kind of never gone there. Well, for you, perhaps the next step is to pray for the courage to bring it up in the middle of the next time you spend a decent amount of time with them. Perhaps invite them uh, to your place if you own a place. Or if you don't have a place, invite them for a drink somewhere. And as you talk, perhaps ask them if they've ever believed anything. Perhaps you could ask them what we've sent in our recent survey. If you had a question for God, what would it be? Delve into what drives them, what, what their purpose in life is. And you know what? I think when they speak, listen and be alert to what they're saying because they might actually invite you to speak more deeply with them. Now, I'm saying all these suggestions uh, fully realizing that if somebody were to say the same things to me, I'd, I'd be terrified. I'd be scared. It, I'd be squirming. This is tough. This stuff is uncomfortable. This stuff might even seem close to impossible. And so how do we do this? I think Jesus hints it for us again in John 13. Uh, and we're going to look at it in our th third and final point, that foot washing is also a pointer to hospitality. It's also a point to the hospitality. See, when Peter the disciple stands up to Jesus and he tells Jesus just how ludicrous he's been to do, to do the work of such a lowly servant, what does Jesus say in return? He says, you do not realize in verse 7, now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Peter, he protests again, probably because it makes no sense what Jesus has just said. But then Jesus says an even stronger statement. He says, unless I wash you in verse 8, you have no part with me. What's he saying? Is he saying that um, you can't be his disciple if you have stinky feet? Right? Is that what he's saying? Thankfully for many of us, that's not the case. But Jesus is saying, what he is saying is that the picture of hospitality and the welcome we see in the washing of feet, he's saying that it points to the ultimate act of hospitality and welcome when he gave his life for us on the cross. You see, after that very night, after washing his disciples' feet, Jesus was arrested. The next day, he was wrongly accused. And then the day after, that very day, actually, he was hung on a cross. 
But three days later, he rose, he conquered death, and in that death and resurrection, Jesus washed us. He washed away our past, our failings, our inadequacies. He washed away our repeated disregard for God. He washed away our sin completely and utterly. See, the parallels are huge. In both cases, Jesus adopts the role of the most despised servant for the good of others. In both the washing and the cross, Jesus' disciples are made clean. In both cases, Jesus' action is incredibly shocking. Right? But he's driven by love in both, and he's willing to be hurt in both. And in both cases, through what he's done, he welcomes those he loves. So why can we be hospitable, even when it feels and seems almost hospitable? Here's why. Jesus has extended to us a welcome in the most ultimate way. He's laid down his life so we might find life, and he tells us to lay down our lives so that others might find life. See, Jesus wants everybody everywhere to know what he's done for them, that they too can be washed by his death and resurrection, that they too are welcome because of his hospitality to them. Now, that means we've got to tell them, but it can't stop there. Right? We've got to show them. That's what this foot washing is about. Through our lives and our service and our hospitality, we show people, we give them a glimpse that Jesus loves them. And so Jesus calls us to take off our fancy clothes, to pick up a towel and a bowl and wash people's feet. Now, if you're visiting church today and, and you're checking out Christianity, a lot of this message um, has been for the family of believers. Um, what I want to say to you, though, is that act of hospitality both in the foot washing, but ultimately at the cross. He's extended that to you. He's done everything to welcome you. And so I really hope that that's something you want to think more about, process more about, wrestle more about. And so if that's you, keep coming along. Keep coming next week. But um, as Nelson was saying, come in February because we're going to be looking at some, real, some, some questions that people have um, told us that they'd want to ask God. Um, we've ranked them into the top four. That's going to be our four weeks that we're going to look at. Come back. Think more. Wrestle more with us. Um, that'll be in the month of February. But as we close, and I'll get the band to come up now. Um, to those of you who are Jesus followers, let me read again uh, for us the last words of this passage for us. See, Jesus says, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you have shown uh, immense hospitality to us. You desire so much to welcome us that you uh, have spared no expense, that you left the throne room of heaven to enter our world, to die on a Roman cross, to defeat death so that we might be washed clean. We thank you that in the foot washing we see just how much you desire to welcome us, but thank you that even, even more so at your death we see how much you desire to welcome us. We pray that uh, through this remarkable act of hospitality to us that we might be driven uh, to show that same hospitality to others. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.